Hi, my name is Cindy Marquez. It is Financial Literacy Month, so welcome to the Financial Advice for All podcast where you're going to get everything you need to set yourself up for success this month. That's right, November, Financial Literacy Month. A time to track your spending, make a budget, save for a rainy day, and do all the other little things that will help you take charge of your finances. It's a special time for us here at Advocus because we launched this podcast for Financial Literacy Month last year, and also because we just love financial literacy. We have two special guests in the studio today. We're talking with Cindy Marquez, a certified financial planner and financial literacy advocate who's passionate about helping clients achieve their financial goals. And also joining us is Lori Martin, a certified trauma treatment specialist who helps people prepare for that first conversation with someone experiencing a sudden loss or death. You'll hear Christine, Associate Director of Education at Advocus, and Lucas, our Communications Coordinator, asking the questions. This conversation is all about helping you get in the mood to make positive financial changes in your life. So sit back, relax, and get ready to take charge of your finances. So tell us, Cindy, why you got into the business and a little bit about yourself. It wasn't my initial plan of action. I was in university as a physics major to start. I love math and science. I was headed down the path of education. I wanted to be a teacher. And then I graduated and realized I don't know the first thing about taxes or how to manage my money. You know, how do I take over the world if I can't even file my taxes? (laughs) So I was working in the service industry at the time as a, a server and you know, around a lot of other millennials who were very flush with cash, as was I at the time, but it just slipped through their fingers. Like none of us really knew what to do with it. There was no sense of literacy there. And so I took a postgrad uh, course, just a one-year thing in financial planning and realized just how important it was. And I just attacked. I just completely pivoted and switched in that direction and focused on that niche that I was surrounded with. I wanted to empower those around me and myself as well. So that's how I got started. Tell us about some of the clients that you've worked with. Do they realize that they need an advisor? How do you uh, convince them that they need to work with an advisor? Truthfully, I don't spend too much time trying to convince anyone. I just act as an advocate. I put the information out there and it's from, you know, dripping on people with that content that they realize like, oh, I didn't know that. That's, That's important. That's good to know. And then that sort of piques their curiosity. So oftentimes... That'll prompt them to realize what they do or don't know and the need to know more. Uh, But that is usually with my younger clients, which is my focus as well. But, I mean, the need is there. I don't try too hard to convince people that uh, they should do a better job. I think most of us are keenly aware of that because you kind of enter adulthood with this sense of lack. You, you realize that this wasn't taught to us and you kind of just bump into walls in the meantime and try to figure it out until at some point, just like this hashtag adulting thing. You know, it's, it's cute to make jokes about it as in like, you know, the lack of adulting, but at some point you, you turn 35 and you're like, this isn't a joke anymore. I need to know. <laughs> this is real life. So they come to me, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. We opened up a financial advice for all hotline for the first time to take questions for today's episode. One of our callers asked how to deal with lifestyle creep, which is when you've started to make more money, but instead of saving more, you start buying pricier goods or just spend more often. Here's that call and Cindy's thoughts on what to do in that situation. 
Hi there, my name is Christoph Fogli. I'm an advisor and a member of Advocus. I'm calling from Edmonton, Alberta. What do I wish um, I was better at having uh, my clients uh, my clients do? Uh, one would be the lifestyle creep, that as their incomes grow and their wealth grows over time, is their uh, propensity to spend tends to grow um, and not always at the, 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 the correct rate. Uh, so trying to curb their lifestyle expenses. So I try to lecture them a little bit about tough love and uh, curbing back some of their spending as they get more affluent uh, and until they're totally ready for retirement. That is a that is a, a very important thing and that's that's the one thing I would recommend that I w- or that I wish they would listen to in terms of my recommendations. A lot of time that uh, comes up from uh, a lack of knowing your numbers and that's where I start with all my clients is knowing your numbers down to how much are you actually earning which is especially tricky with younger clients who do shift work, and so it's not a steady salary, and to what they're actually spending. A lot of us don't actually know, and so I'll sit down with them as an exercise and complete, you know, a month cash flow, and like, what do you think you spend in this category, in this category, and then I send them home to actually track it, and usually those numbers vary, like, they vary wildly from each other, because we don't realize uh, like you said, with the lifestyle creep, just that everyday spending creep. Those, you know, the Starbucks purchase here. I'm kind of tired. I'm just going to call a lift, you know, purchase there. All these little things, they add up. And as we make more of it, we realize there's more of this cash sitting in our bank account. And so it's easier to make those impulse purchases. But when you're actually tracking your numbers, I think there's a, le- a sense of accountability to wanting to meet your goals or at least set some goals now that you know where the money is going, what you're bringing in and what's going out. But otherwise, if you're not tracking it, that's how that lifestyle creep happens. I find usually if you do a good job of actually tracking the in and out flows, then we can avoid that. But there's there's no way to address that without actually knowing your numbers. Okay, so you've said a few things there about tracking your spending. Is that the same as having a budget? And why don't more people have a budget if it's such a good idea? I think that um, tracking your money and having a budget are two separate ideas. And people stop themselves from setting a budget because they feel like that's something very tedious. Oh, I have to assign a dollar amount to each and every category in my life. That's not necessarily true. Tracking your numbers is just having a very solid idea of what's going in and out. And then creating a budget from there is really just, well, based on what I bring in and the mandatory expenses that must come out and included in that is savings because I say, you know, treat your future like a mandatory bill, non-negotiable, has to be paid, future you needs this money. So that's included in that sort of fixed expenses. So what's left over, that's what I consider your budget. And then that's just sort of, it doesn't have to be very strict. Well, I have an envelope of this amount of cash and I can only spend this on entertainment. I can only spend this on food. I think if you have, because our weeks change, you know, we don't know if we're going to be eating out a lot this week or maybe we're going to spend a lot of money on transportation. So it's not a simple solution to just say you have X amount of dollars for this category only. It's more, you know, you have this amount to work with over the course of the week. So be cognizant of how you spend that. And what stops people from budgeting is that idea that they have to assign a dollar value to every activity in their life. And that's not necessarily true. I feel like sometimes people will start that budget and then, you know, there's a lot of things that get in the way, roadblocks. 
they'll start, they'll get motivated, they're saving money, right? Not spending as much. And then say, for example, Christmas comes and they got to start buying the gifts for everyone. You start losing control of how much money you're spending. You're like, oh, I got to buy gifts for X person, X person, X person. And it just gets out of control to the point where they just completely forget about the budget, right? And how much they're saving. I don't know if they forget about it, but they kind of give up. It's like, yeah. oh, I've already messed up this week. It's too much effort to try to get back, you know, on track again. Personally, people share with me one of their weakest moments about money is the fear of money. They want instant gratitude or they don't think they can achieve or where is the money going to come from or how am I going to make my payments? You know, that self-fulfillment thing. And that's a roller coaster ride for people and, and characteristics of people too. I know people around me that are real spenders and we're talking someone in their 50s or 60s that they've really never saved and their saving grace if they had any was their RSP. And there's also attitude. The attitude as well, why do I have to work so hard? Because I have my parents to look after me and when they're gone, I have what they've earned. There's so many different dynamics of thinking with people and how they no, look no. at working with an advisor or how they even believe they can save money or not. Yeah. It's a very personal, like you said earlier, it's a personal um, belief system that we have. And if we're procrastinators in nature, then that's that's going to be a, a faux pas for us too. It's going to make the road a little One more challenging. One of the biggest headlines now is parents are actually pushing back their retirement five to 10 years to pay for their kids to stay at home, live off them, right? They'll pay for their house, their car, whatever it is. But that's not necessarily a condition of kids being spoiled. I think the economic climate is very different and that speaks again to the whole trying to keep up with the Joneses is also trying to keep up with your parents and what they accomplished. My parents were immigrants and they came here with little to no money but they bought a home by the time they were you know 20 they were married they already had a kid by then had another kid the next year I came 10 years later but the point is they accomplished all of this in these early stages of their life where I'm like I was still a student like I can't even fathom that but, you know, it's just not realistic anymore. Education is so expensive. And to be fair, my parents bought their home for $60,000 in Toronto. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> that's a deal. <laughs> that was years ago, of course. But that's just not the case for us anymore. I mean, that's not even a down payment for a home. Never mind, you know, being able to pay off our student loans. So there's this delay that's kind of pushed onto us in terms of being able to start our lives and parents because they love us and they're willing to do what it takes to support us they'll let us stay and you know their retirements are sacrificed as well but you know our ability to start our futures off to a good start that's delayed as well we're all kind of affected by this how we're raised is so subliminal too i remember my parents i was raised on a farm and they worked really really hard and my mother had this saying save a little spend a little, but live lots. And I watched how they saved. I watched how they worked. I watched how they had fun with their money. And that was a great influence on me. So you know, when you mentioned how your parents influence you, they, they do. And you might say, I don't want to be like my parents. 
I want to have a different type of career or more money than they do. But subliminally, sometimes there's a trigger in our subconscious that tweaks us back to the way we've been raised and that belief system sneaks in. So that makes it difficult and challenging too sometimes. But what you're doing, Cindy, is so key is education, educating the people on the why we need to save, the why on how it's so easy. And just with guidance from you, how that can make their life shift to a very different and happy place, reaching those goals that they never believed they could have. Sometimes before we even talk about the tools to get there, a lot of it is just it starts with that shift in mindset. They need that bit of reinforcement that just because you haven't done this or that by now does not mean, you know, there's no hope here. You shouldn't compare yourself to others or feel like you're unworthy of achieving anything because you're setting the standard for yourself that's impossible to expect for yourself, considering your circumstances. So usually the conversation starts there with the shift in mindset that helps them on that road. I think uh, that's an, a necessary first step mm-hmm. is the emotional side to money. So do you both agree that to take charge of your finances, the first thing you have to do is take charge of what you think about money? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so if someone has changed their mentality, they they now know that it's worth making the effort. What are the top three things they can do to start taking charge of their finances? Number one, start tracking. And uh, be kind to yourself because tracking your money, your income, and your expenses doesn't mean we're ready to set a budget yet. So, you know, just be honest. Live your life as you normally would and track that money so you can have an accurate picture of how you actually live your life. If you're trying to just now get a picture of how you spend your money, but you're already trying to manipulate that by doing things differently for the sake of improving what you write down. I mean, these numbers are for you. They're supposed to help you. So it starts with being kind and honest with how the money goes in and out. From there, you can work with a budget, what's left over, what's necessary to pay, non-negotiable, and then what's left over, that's what you work with as your budget. So number one is start tracking and be kind to yourself, be honest about that. Number two is find out what that discretionary amount of money left over is. You can build a budget from there. It doesn't have to be, you know, a fixed dollar per activity in your life. And then finally, it's, you know, just keeping yourself accountable and not assuming that because you missed the mark this month that you've ruined the plan going forward and let's just abandon this. It's, you got to be kind to yourself all along the way and uh, just stick to your guns. I told our guests that when my wife and I were thinking about doing the tracking exercise, we both said, let's not start this week because last week we sort of spent a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) There's probably never a right time to start, is there? That's exactly what I mean. You know, you're like, I'm not going to write it down this week because I know there's a lot of expenses. Well, those weeks always come up. So they need to be part of what you're tracking because you're always going to have that odd week or the odd month, a.k.a. December, when it's just kind of a free for all. It's the wild, wild west finance. (laughs) I think money too is a is a what I would call a philosophy of education so when I shared earlier about what my mother used to ingrain in us save a little spend a little live lots my first savings account was when my grandfather died and I have 
three siblings, and he gave each of us $700. I was 13 years old. So I watched the dynamics of my family. My sister, she was 10 years older than I am, bought a piano. My other sister, she bought a car. My brother bought a snowmobile, and I invested my money, and I still have that money. And it just shows you, because of the way my mother taught me, and I think parents need to do this with their children if they're themselves in this education of learning how to save money and working with an advisor, how money is being spent to good use and how you can actually make it work for you. And I think that's exactly what you're doing, Cindy, right? You're educating people how to make money work for you. And I just think that story is so cool because when I share it, people go, well, the car's gone and the piano's been sold. What's yeah, left? That's right. Right? Yeah. And I think that's nice, too, is you're able to educate your clients on how to raise their kids, hopefully, in a smarter way as well, right? I think that just comes with being, like, open, talking about money as if it's not a taboo thing. Mm -hmm. So I never really knew how my parents were doing. We got everything we needed, but money wasn't discussed in the household. So I didn't know if they were struggling. I didn't know if they were doing very well. The point is, it's a, it's a private thing that wasn't discussed. So I got what I needed to live a happy life as a child, but I never knew. And so I had no opportunity to learn in the household. And unfortunately, there was no education at uh, in high school or, you know, in any of the other courses I took aside from when I specifically set out to learn about it. So it definitely starts with just talking about money. And, you know, when you're with your young kids out spending, explaining why you chose one product over the other, you know, brand names versus a no-name brand, and just explaining why, you know, you made that choice. And that helps to already start to instill this idea that you need to – spending money is a conscious choice. It's not just like things cost money, so I'm going to spend it regardless. You can make choices along the way to spend a little less money or save a little bit more just by tweaking your decision slightly. But you have to communicate to the that to your children, or they don't know where these opportunities can come up in life. If you like what you're hearing so far, and you'd like to take charge of your finances, I personally invite you to go to financialadviceforall.com and take our 30-day challenge. One of the other things that we talk about for Financial Literacy Month is um, debt and credit and using those wisely. What kind of advice do you give to your clients for debt and using credit wisely? Oh, right. This is a fully loaded question. This one comes up a lot. So here's the thing about credit cards, you know. They can be a very useful tool when used correctly, but the thing is most individuals don't use them that way. So in theory, credit cards are a 30-day interest-free loan when you need to advance yourself money for things that you don't immediately have but can pay back within 30 days. And so there's no interest you know, added on to that. Great tool. And then you can even collect some additional points uh, there. But I think... Most of the time, that's not how credit is used. And it's just, you know, there's no pain in spending money now because, first of all, you just, you're not pulling out any physical cash. You're just tapping this card, getting what you need, and continuing on with your day. There's no sense of, what do I immediately owe now or what do I have left to spend? Well, first of all, it wasn't yours to spend with, to spend to begin with. 
And so you get carried away that way. There's a line that I read in uh, David Chilton's Wealthy Barber Returns. And he said, uh, credit cards, you know, because they're so convenient, they allow us to act wealthy now. But acting wealthy prevents us from actually being wealthy in the future. And so we're going to accrue all this debt, uh, spending money that isn't ours, and then we're digging a hole for ourselves. So, you know, sure, credit is a very useful tool. Unfortunately, that's not how it's usually There was used. actually a recent survey from Rates.ca, and they admitted that 44% of those surveyed by Rates.ca admitted to a poor understanding of how to use a credit card. The same with a line of credit. I see lines of credit as a very useful tool insofar as it can be that emergency fund for you, but a lot of individuals just like, oh, again, another free loan. And so they take that cash and just spend wildly, and well, now they have another debt load. And sure, it might be cheaper than credit card interest rates, but that's not how a line of credit should be used. And so individuals will just accept everything that's offered to them, and banks love to offer us more credit. Um, and then they get themselves into a big mess and it's hard to dig yourselves out. So it definitely starts with being aware of the different types of credit instruments, how they are used, and when it's most beneficial to use one over the other. I- I'm now uh, led to remember <laughs> an exercise I did with a client. We're on this credit card statement. I'm like, let's just turn to this last page. I want you to read this line here. And it says, if you only pay the minimum amount each and every month, this is how long it'll take you to pay it off. And it was something like 43 years for just a couple thousand dollars. So, <laughs> and a lot of people do that, right? They only pay the minimum. I'm like, I'm fine. I paid what they asked of me this month as opposed to paying it off in full, but it's never going to go away if that's your approach to paying off credit. And one of the things just for millennials, so how do millennials balance, you know, paying off these crazy student loans look at buying their first house in these crazy real estate markets, still continue saving for retirement, buying a car, buying right. a car all this stuff. How do they balance all of that, still keep on saving for retirement, do all of it? Well, it's not easy. It, uh, it can be done, but not as quick as uh, most of us would like that to happen. A lot of clients come to me, uh, millennial clients, and like, I want to save up a down payment in two years. And then I'll spell it in numbers, what that means, what they need to save to get there. Because let's think for a second, if you're going to live in Toronto and we assume an average house to cost a million dollars, and if you want to hit that 20% down payment mark, well, do you have a cool 200K just sitting around idly? And what does it take to save that up? I mean, that's 100K a year. You know, that's almost, that's about $8,000, you know, over the course of each month that you'd need to save. Is that feasible? Probably not. So it comes with readjusting your expectations and prioritizing your financial goals. So deciding what's a bigger financial priority. You know, do you want to pay off your debts first and foremost because it keeps you up at night? Or are you just dying to have a home? You need to decide so we can allocate where most of your effort is going Because the truth is, unless you're making this enormous six-figure income, it's hard to really um, go full tilt in all directions at the same time. So it's not easy. It can be done, but over a much longer time period than most of us would like. But it certainly can be done. And we have to, you know, shuffle our financial priorities. And I think it's also this innate feeling that we need to buy a house. Again, and it comes from 
keeping up with the Joneses and that might be our parents because it's what they want from us or it's because it's what they achieve. So it's like, well, I'm 25 now. I guess I should be looking to get married. I guess, you know, in five years I should have a home by now. And it's trying to follow in those footsteps that can, you know, lead us to that point of despair. And I'm like, what's the point? I can't do this. This seems impossible. So there's no shame at all in just renting. There's nothing to say that you must own a home, um, whether it's a physical house or owning a condo. You know, in some cases, it may make more sense to just keep renting. And there's no shame in that. Same with having more than one job to fund your financial priorities. There is no shame in that. And in a lot of cases, that's the only way that you can do it is by spreading yourself a little thin. You have to work a little harder or you have to, again, adjust your expectations for yourself. Maybe home ownership is not in your future if debt repayment is what's really important to you and vice versa. It's hard giving all of this advice to clients and keeping taking care of yourself. How do you take care of yourself when you're taking care of all your clients too? That's a very good question. In my first year, it was a lot of like, oh, look at all this great information I know. I'm going to preach the good word of finance, everyone. And then I found myself sort of empathizing with my clients because I was making a lot of the same mistakes. So it took a while for me to practice what I preach as well. And so I, you know, assume that same level of difficulty for my clients. It's not always going to be easy for them to start implementing these things right away. Just because all of a sudden their face lights up because it clicked, oh, now they know how, doesn't mean it's easy to actually get started. Again, it comes down to being kind to myself and reminding my clients to be kind to themselves and that tripping up doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's it's all over. So taking care of myself just means, you know, allowing myself the flexibility to make mistakes here and there, but remember what my priorities are. In a lot of ways, I've implemented um, routines to help prevent me from slipping up. So all of my debt payments, all of my savings payments, that's automated. So I put it out of my hands. Every single Monday, I know that every single week, every Monday, all of my savings, all of my debt payments come out automatically. So I don't have a choice in the matter. And then the rest is just deciding how do I live my week this week based on what I know I'll have left. So I put in those systems to help prevent human error. And I think that's helpful for everyone. I did it online via my bank. I bank uh, with Tangerine. It's pretty user-friendly and straightforward to set up recurring payments to all of uh you know, my creditors. So every single week, I, I set the amounts. And uh, when it comes out, I set that frequency to happen right away. And then depending, you know, if you're investing with an advisor, or if you're doing it yourself, you can also set up an automatic savings program, you set the amount and the frequency. And so those are all things that are very easy to do. Most banks uh, will offer you those opportunities to implement that yourself online. So this isn't some special thing that I have access to that no one else does. Pretty much every consumer is able to do this themselves through their online banking portal. And I would highly recommend it because life gets in the way. You know, how many of us say that we're going to send an email today and then remember three days from now, like, oh, darn, I forgot. Because life gets in the way and the same thing happens for bills. So you just take it out of your hands non-negotiable. I know it's already happening for me every single Monday. Can I automate a daily workout? (laughs) I wish. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Sure, you could just always be late for work and so you have to run. (laughs) Run in to get in on time. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I think there's three types of people that 
may not feel like they need an advisor, maybe you can help us with understanding why they would need an advisor. If you are too young and you feel like you don't have any money or anything to start off with, those that want to do it on their own through uh, different robo-advice platforms or different online platforms, or the ones that are too old and think it's just too late and there's no point in starting now. What advice would you give to those clients? Well, to address that uh, first uh, category of people, uh, those who are too young and feel like they don't have a lot of money, why bother? Um, I'll say this. I saw uh, a quote online that pretty much accurately captures this. If you can't manage $100, you can't manage $10,000. You know, you don't learn how to be better at money by amassing more of it. Financial literacy isn't a byproduct of wealth. Wealth is a side effect of financial literacy. So just because you're young and you don't have a lot to work with now, doesn't mean that there's no value in learning how to manage what it is you have, even, even if you feel like it isn't a lot. This is, this is a matter of learning the tools and skills uh, to go forward, just like you know anyone who you know, before they become a professional at anything, they need to start somewhere. They need to learn how. And maybe they don't have the skill set yet, but you learn that skill set and then you become an expert. So to those who are young and wondering what's the point, well, there's a lot of value in starting now that you have, you know, uh, a little to work with, not too much on the line to risk and finding out the ways to be productive with what you have so that when you do have a lot of money, you already know how to manage that and uh, make it work well for you. Now, having said that, that second category of people uh, who wonder why I work with a human, I can do it all online, that is absolutely true. And this now comes down to that sense of financial literacy and the need for hand-holding over here and there. Because like we said all throughout um, today's session, there's very emotional side to money. So the value of working with an advisor is that they're going to teach you all the tools and tricks that you need to know versus having to be proactive and learn that yourself online, which you can. And if you're a proactive person, that's a great avenue for you if you're going to do what it takes to learn what you need. So I am not at all bashing those who want to do it themselves. In fact, I focus a lot on helping to build up individuals who want to do it themselves by teaching them what it is they need to know, simply because maybe they don't know how to filter through all the information out there and know what's what. So there's nothing wrong with doing it yourself online. But when it comes to investing, it's an especially emotional thing. So to remind yourself of what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve by investing when you're in a big market panic, to sort of shake yourself out of that panic and remember like, okay, you know, uh, this is a long-term goal here. Maybe I shouldn't panic right now. But most people don't really put themselves in check in that way. And so they'll just sort of go with the flow and pull their money out when perhaps they shouldn't, therefore crystallizing losses. Having an advisor will help remind you of your goals, what it is you set out to do, why you did it to begin with, what's the likelihood of impact based on your goals and what's happening in the market. So you're going to get that very relevant, tailored advice to how you're feeling and what's going on in your life versus being left to your own devices and having to shake yourself out of that panic, out of that trauma. 
if you don't have somebody to talk to, it's just very easy to kind of pull out, panic, um, and kind of freak out. But when you have an advisor to talk to and you say, is this okay? Am I going to be okay? What's happening? Am I all right? Do I need to do anything? What should I do? Then that's why why the advisor comes in and is so valuable to help you through that panic and, again, the emotional side. And something key here is an advisor is your friend. We're talking relationship, and the more you trust your advisor, the more confident you become and the more confident they become of you. And it's that relationship that really can make your career, your savings, anything personal grow, whether it's good things happening in your life or not so good things. It's easy to blame the advisor, blame God, blame the company, blame somebody for things not sticking together for us. But on the trauma side of life or the human side of life, we try to maintain control. And in fairness, we might point the finger at the advisor, but truthfully, the advisor is a guide. They're there to guide you. They're there when you know you have a question that needs to be answered. And they're there to look after the tactical sides of life when you're emotionally not connected to them. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So that's pretty powerful and helpful in life. And I guess uh, not to deviate from the last part of the question there, that, that final category of individuals, those who feel like they're already old, what's the point? You know, now I'm already retired. So I'll I'll ask this question. How would you feel if you lost your job and remained unemployed for 30 to 40 years? Is that a terrifying thing? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Isn't that called retirement? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And most people don't see it that way. When you say retirement, you get these warm feelings of like, oh, what a relaxing time in my life it should be. But when you pose the question that way of like a job loss, a permanent job loss, like, whoa, that's terrifying. But they're one in the same things. And so retirement should be this very comfortable experience for us. But, you know, it's comfortable if you have the the means to make it comfortable. And so if you haven't done what needs to be done to set yourself up for success, it's not going to be a comfortable experience. You're going to see it as like, oh, I got laid off for 30 years and I'm struggling and this is terrifying. So being in that stage of your life, it's especially important to have that guidance and clarification in terms of opportunities to either um, rein in some more retirement income for yourselves, maybe even just by rearranging and reallocating your money into one product or another, because there are a lot of options when it comes to retirement on where to pull your sources from. And I'm sorry to say, but you know, CPP and OAS is a nice supplement to retirement income, but it can't really be depended upon to be your primary source. So considering retirement as this comfortable period in life is not necessarily the case if you haven't taken the steps to set yourself up for success. And even if you're already in retirement, it is not too late to make adjustments at that point. Retirement's a heavy word today. People are struggling with the word retirement. People will share with me retirement means giving up, not having a purpose. What am I going to do now? I know people that have shared stories with me at age 45, 50, all excited about retirement, have the portfolio set up, they're bored to tears, they don't know what to do with themselves, and I know even people in the emergency response careers 
it's not a healthy thing for them to be retired. So there we go again with the emotional side of being human. We need to have a purpose. Mm -hmm. So as an advisor, there is that conversation that can create that element of what is important to you now? What is important to you when you do go into this new chapter of living your life as opposed to retirement? And give them kind of questions as a creative advisor to help them now start opening the door to the future moving into that direction. Yeah, there is value and advice for that stage in your life. Maybe you're not actively earning an income, so you think, what's the point? But there's always a point to being financially literate, whether that's working with an advisor or just educating yourself. Again, I know a lot of these questions sort of are in the direction of working with an advisor, but there's so many opportunities for individuals to educate themselves online and finding those viable sources of information like financial advice for all. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You've been listening to the Financial Advice for All podcast brought to you by Advocus. This is a special episode for Financial Literacy Month. Visit us at financialadviceforall.com participate in the 30-day challenge to take charge of your finances and to see everything that's going on in Canada and across advocates for Financial Literacy Month. You can learn more about our guest Cindy Marquez at cindymarquez.com. That's C-I-N-D-Y-M-A-R-Q-U-E-S.com. And you can also learn more about Lori Martin at lifeinterrupted.ca. The Financial Advice for All podcast is intended to be used for informational purposes only and does not provide accounting, tax, investment, legal, or other professional advice. Before making any decision or taking any action, you should consult an independent and appropriately qualified professional. You can review our full terms of use at financialadviceforall.com forward slash TOU. Thank you for listening. Now go out there and take charge of your finances.